Hulk's going to be back, huh? I am pumped. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're, we're gone last week. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Um, a few things to, to get going here. Uh, so, wearing uh, Paul's t-shirt um, for support. And I know, I think, Seth, you announced the, the, din- the dinner, right? Okay, awesome. Um, just... As a church family, I'm going to ask AJ to come forward, and we're just going to pray as a family just to continue to, to uplift the Lumbergs. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful this morning that we can come to you, and we're thankful for the gifting that you've given people, doctors and nurses and people that just care. And so, Lord, we're thankful for progress so far for Paul. And we continue to lift up the family to you. And, Lord, I just pray that they would feel your presence. And, Lord, as a church body, that we would surround them and they're in love. And that comes from you. So, Lord, at times we don't know what to, what to pray. Your word tells us that we can just come. And so we're thankful for that as well. That you intercede on our behalf when we don't know what to say or what to pray. And we look at things and don't have answers, but know that you're in control. So we just lift up the Lumbergs to you, lift up Paul to you for healing, pray for wisdom for doctors, institutions, And Lord, we continue to pray for encouragement for them. Visit them with your presence. We're thankful for them as well. So Lord, show us what we can do. And Lord, we rely on your promises that you have in your word, that you're watching over and that you are in control. In your name, amen. This past week, as some of you may know, our sister in Christ, Ella Frisian, uh, passed away. Um, I think it was Tuesday night. Don't quote me on that. But her funeral will be this Tuesday at 2 o'clock and the wake at 1 o'clock. Um, I had a chance to connect with her. and it, She guessed my age, so she had, she had that going for her. And she was very kind. Um, and just in the very little that we talked, um, I could just see like her, the hope of eternal life and that this isn't the end. And just the, the hope that she's right now with Christ and uh, living a lot more gloriously than we are right now. And so, so just a heads up that this Tuesday at 2 o'clock is the funeral here, and then 1 o'clock is the wake. But, okay. So today, I want to talk about two things. One is our union with Christ, and two is our unity in Christ. And I say that straightforward because that's in the text we're looking at, continuing Galatians. Uh, But they're extremely important to me and to you, to your family, to our church, to our daily lives. And so our, our union with Christ, your union with Christ is the foundation, is the basis for your salvation. 
It's the basis for your justification, for your forgiveness, for your righteousness. Um, it's for your, your power to overcome sin, to be a godly parent, to be a godly student, to be a godly child, to be a godly spouse, student, friend. The basis of hope for eternal life. Our union with Christ. And consequently, if you're here today and are not trusting in Christ, it is the basis of your hopelessness. Because without the union of Christ being separated from Christ, there is no hope. And so our union with Christ that we're looking at today is massively significant to me and to you as believers in Christ. And then the second thing we're going to see in our passage is our unity in Christ. Our collective unity is also incredibly significant as it affects your spiritual health and state, my spiritual health and state, our conditions, as we are dependent on each other to grow into Christ together. Uh, just to kind of show this in the scripture, just a few verses here. Um, Hebrews chapter 3, the writer says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitful, deceitfulness of sin. The command to, to exhort each other so we're not deceived by our sin. In Hebrews 12 later, uh, thinking about our accountability for each other, our care for each other, um, the, the writer gives this the picture of the body of Christ, and he uses that. He says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Why? So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. Then he says this. He says, See to it. See to it. No one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral, immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So we're commanded to see to it for others. See to it that this does not happen in this body. And so we see this, uh, that Paul also uses that, that picture in Ephesians 4, how we're supposed to build each other up, growing together. Um, he says, when each part is working properly. And so we see this interdependence, this accountability, this need and the dependence on each other. And so we see this, this significance of our unity in Christ. In fact, in John chapter 17, when Jesus prays for his disciples and prays for you and me, he says our unity in some aspect impacts our witness to our community. He says in John 17, verse 20, I do not ask, this is Jesus praying to God the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, meaning you and I, if we're trusting in Christ, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So our unity, to some degree, has an impact on our witness to the Sully community, to Wilton, to Shevlin, and, and beyond. Our unity has some impact even on our witness to the lost. And so our unity in Christ and our union with Christ is significant to our daily lives, to our families, um, as believers, to our witness to unbelievers. So it's important, very important. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're ending chapter 3 today. So Galatians chapter 3, 
Um, before we read there, let me, uh, it's been a little bit, so let me give a little review, a uh, very broad view, just as a reminder. So we got the Galatian churches, uh, multiple churches. Paul, he planted them while he was there. Now he's returned, or he hasn't returned yet, but he's writing back to them. Why? Because he's heard that there's false teachers that have come behind him and have been teaching falsely that, hey, if you want to be a Christian and if you want to continue to be a Christian, you need to become a Jew and follow the Mosaic law. Be circumcised, follow all of these different ceremonial laws, uh, observe the Sabbath, these festivals, all this. You need to do this in order to become a Christian, in order to, to stay a Christian. And Paul's running back saying that is not the gospel. And we saw through chapter 1, chapter 2, and uh, the, the chapter 3 up to this point that Paul has been saying over and over and over, it has nothing to do with the law. That is not what saves us. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And he repeatedly does that, and he lays defense after defense. He argues for his authority as an apostle so that he can argue the, the, his gospel. And so that's what we've seen so far. Um, earlier in chapter 3, we saw that Paul even defended how it's always been like that. Even in the Old Testament, it's always been by faith. And he shows the example of Abraham. It has always been by faith. And what we just saw two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I should say now, is that the law was never meant to give life. It was never meant for us to be righteous by the law, but it was to point us to Jesus. And then in Christ, through faith in him, that we can receive righteousness and eternal life. Amen? So this is quite the, the, the amount he's hitting. And he's very adamant, if you remember some of the um, strong words he uses. This is the only letter of Paul that does not have an encouragement or a commendation, I should say. The only one. And so he's very stern. This is very important. So that's where we're at. And so John, uh, not John, Galatians chapter 3, end of chapter 3, the last three verses, 27. He writes, For... As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Paul follows in chapter 3, from chapter 3 I should say, when he talks about the role of the law, how it's in Christ and through faith in Christ, he then highlights our union with Christ. And he talks about the blessings that come from this union, which one of them being our collective unity in Christ. And so that's what we're going to see today. And so first, let's hit on our union with Jesus, with Christ. So verse 27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so we got two pictures here, right? Baptized into Christ, put on Christ. And if you see the relationship between the two, it's basically if you have done this, then you have done this. It's like uh, if you have lived, you've been born of a woman. You can't really do one without the other. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Now the key to understand this as, as anything is what does he actually mean by this? What does he mean by these two pictures, being baptized into Christ and having put on Christ. And so let's take that first picture first. Um, have been baptized into Christ. Now with this, have you ever asked or went up to like a, a teacher or a boss or a parent and asked the question and you get some response, something like, well, yes, 
Oh, and, and no. Like you get this double response, and you're kind of like, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? This yes and no kind of answer. For example, you might have heard the question, um, can God create a rock so massive that he couldn't lift? And the answer is kind of yes and no. Yes, he could create such a massive and heavy rock, but it's also no because he could still lift said rock because he's God and he's, uh, he's all-powerful. I bring that up because I'm going to ask a question, and the answer is yes and no. And I think as we go through it, it'll make more sense. And so the question is this. When Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, is he referring to physical baptism? That being the physical and literal action of being immersed in water. Is that what he is referring to? And I told you the answer. It's yes and no. And I think it will make more sense as we go through this. I'm smiling because I'm excited. This is a lot of fun. At least for me. Um, And I meant to... Run this through with Casey. Like, Casey, does this make any sense how I explain this? And we didn't really have time. Or I shouldn't say that. Um, anyway, here we go. Here we go. Okay. Keep in mind that this was written about 2,000 years ago. And I would argue that the Galatians knew exactly what Paul was meaning by this. And just being 2,000 years apart and by the customs, the practice, it takes a little explanation, but follow with this. So first, yes and no. By being baptized into Christ, Paul meant physical baptism. Yes and no. First, the yes part. So in yes, when Paul says those baptized into Christ, he's pointing to physical baptism, those in the churches in Galatia who he's writing to, who have been literally baptized. And Paul is able to say this. He is able to say that those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, which is to say to have put on his righteousness and have been saved because at this time, Baptism almost immediately followed one's faith in Christ. Almost immediately. Almost all the time in the same day and almost immediately following. For example, and we see this in Acts, uh, uh, described very well. Acts chapter 2, after Paul, uh, Peter's first sermon, it, Luke, the writer, says, Those who received the word, that is by faith, were baptized. Acts chapter 8, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Acts 18, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. They were so close. It happened immediately, if not immediately, the same day after they believed, they were baptized. So, it is not physical baptism that is what saves us or causes us to put on Christ, as Paul says in a verse. Rather, Because of one's faith, it is assumed you have been baptized because at that time, baptism immediately followed your faith in Christ in the same day. And that is why Paul can use it, baptism, almost as a synonym for one's faith and salvation in Christ. Um, As one pastor says, because of the immediacy of their baptism following conversion, Paul and the early church saw these as one collective event or experience. Not that baptism added something to salvation, but that it occurred immediately following. I heard uh, a pastor, Eric, who is a, a pastor at the Ephraim Church in Bemidji, I heard him share uh, a, I thought was a great illustration on this. And that has to do with our wedding day. And so coming up here, May 24th, right, babe? That's the right day? Is Casey and my 
uh, wedding anniversary. We'll be, our, our, we'll be married for six years. And I think when we think about that day, I think about when we jumped in the car and we drove over to the barn where we had the reception, we did not have on the back of our car a sign that said, um, just married at exactly 12.48 p.m. We didn't have something like that. This is for sure when it happened. Uh, sure, we could have figured out the exact moment we said our vows or said I do. We could have figured out the exact moment that the, the pastor announced us as, as husband and wife. And I'm sure in God's eyes, there's an exact moment where we were just fiancés and then now we are officially husband and wife. No question. But when we talk about it, we refer to it. We don't, we don't talk about our wedding day in that way. In fact, a lot of times... We refer, when we get, to get married, we refer to the ceremony. We refer to that whole day. Sometimes we even refer to that year or the summer that when we think about getting married, oh, it was 2014 we got married. Yes, I had to double check there. Um, that we just think, we, we refer to it. So the point is this. We refer back to the point we got married by, by referring to events and times that occurred immediately before, after, or during, or near this time. And in the same way, Paul is referring back to the time we first trusted in Jesus by referring back to baptism, which normally occurred immediately following one putting their faith in Jesus. So yes, Paul is referring to physical baptism because when he talks about our union with Christ, about putting on Christ, and when we first believed, physical baptism would have occurred immediately following. So that's the yes part of the question. And it's the no part, no. He is not referring, he's not ultimately referring to physical baptism. It isn't the physical action in water that causes us to be saved or declared righteous or to put on Christ. It is faith. And we see this very clearly in the context. Uh, verse 27 is where we see this. Verse 26. Paul says that we are children of God through faith, right? That was the kind of the conclusion of the last um, time we looked at the passage. And then verse 27, we see the conjunction for, and it kind of connects this together, that those who are baptized is the same group that have put their faith in Christ. So even within the context, it's those who have put their faith in Christ who are baptized and have put on Christ. On top of that, the whole point of Galatians is Paul saying, it has nothing to do with works. It has nothing to do with the law. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So it would make absolutely no sense that Paul's saying, all right, now you got to be baptized. In order to be saved. That makes absolutely no sense. So within the context, it's clear that he's referring to by faith alone. So Paul is not ultimately referring to physical baptism, but our faith in Jesus. He's also given us a picture of salvation, which is exactly what physical baptism is, an outward profession and picture of what occurred inwardly. Um, so Paul uses this picture of immersion in water, baptism, to express our immersion in Christ, our union with Christ. With that all being said, so the answer is yes. Paul makes this statement using baptism as a picture of our union with Jesus through faith because at that time, baptism was pretty much synonymous with salvation because baptism normally came immediately after one put their faith in Christ. So the answer is yes and no. Yes, using a picture of baptism, those who would have been put their faith in Christ would have been baptized already. I said that really fast, I just realized and no, because he's not saying, and I want to make it clear, he's not saying physical baptism saves you, not at all. But those who have 
put their faith in Christ, he assumes, because it was the custom of the day, that they've already been baptized. So we have this picture of union with Christ, right? Being baptized in Christ being uh, by faith. That's the first action. So he says, those who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. So let's look at that second picture, that second action. And remember that, that, that correlation that those who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. And I've already said a few times that this putting on Christ refers to our union with Christ. I assume you've heard this saying, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing, right? Have you, have you heard that? No such thing as bad weather, bad clothing. Your mom probably said it to you or whatever. Um, I think about this uh, in the evenings because for whatever reason, it's usually when it's completely dark out, close to the coldest part of the day, when Casey and I will look at each other kind of with hope and ask, like, hey, you already fed the horses and chickens and water, right? You already went out there and, and did that, right? Most of the time, it's no, no, go ahead, honey. And so I'm usually the one that goes out there. But when Casey does, because sometimes she wants to go out there and kiss the horses and run, whatever she does with them. But she'll go out there, and so I'll watch Sawyer. But Casey, she doesn't have a coat. She has one of those full-on suits that she'll jump in that has, it's all, whatever you want to call it. I'm not even sure what they're called. What? Oh, it has, sure. Yes. But you, you get, get your pants, get your, your, your arms, everything, and then you just zip it up, and she's ready to go. And that's exactly what this picture is of putting on Christ completely envelopes us, completely encloses us. So putting on Christ, as one pastor explains, it describes how Christ's life, presence, and righteous nature envelop and enfold the believer completely. Just as Casey's suit completely enfolds her, it visibly shows us the union that we have with Christ. And this is an inseparable union. We didn't cause the union, and we can't cause it to, to, to fall apart. So through faith, we are unified with Christ. You are identified with him, and he identifies with you. He is your deepest identity. I assume most of us have recently put up Christmas lights, right? And if you're like me, you're not the biggest fan of it because most likely what happened is when you put it away the year before, you just kind of threw it together, like, oh, threw two of them together, whatever, and then the next year you open them up and it's like some sicko tied up as much as he could, right? <laughs> and you can't tell which light is on what strain or where this one strain end, one, one begins. You can't tell, okay, is this part of that strain or not? It's just such a mess. And that's exactly our union with Christ but without the frustration. We cannot tell the two apart. We're so unified with Christ that we cannot tell. So Jesus' life, his presence, his righteousness completely envelops us and closes us through faith. That's what it means to have put on Christ, like putting on a warm clothing like Casey does when she runs outside. And because of our union with Christ, we have all the benefits of Christ. Uh, jump down to verse 29. Paul writes, and if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And if you remember back in verse 16 of the same chapter, Paul writes that because Jesus, uh, that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham and all the promises of Abraham culminates in Christ. We are heirs of this promise because we are unified in union with Christ through faith. 
So we're heirs of this. And I want to make one distinction here in that Paul is referring to, um, he has been referring to this promise to Abraham all the time. He brought it up and defines it. And I want to quickly retouch on that this refers to specific promises to Abraham, meaning it's not referring to the, the land promises. Those are being referred to, yes, here. He's talking about the promise of righteousness through faith. And we see that in the context. Verse 6 and 9, and I'm just going to lay out that this is referring to justification by faith, righteousness through faith. He says in verse 6, earlier in that chapter, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, know then that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand in Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of God, blessed with righteousness, being justified, declared righteous. And so this promise that we're heirs of is this promise of being declared righteous through faith. And that's the promise we are heirs of. And we're inseparable from this promise because we're unified with Christ, like the ball of lights. We're inseparable. So those who have been baptized into Christ, those that put their faith in Christ, have put on Christ and received all the benefits of Christ. Which includes this promise of being declared righteous. Um, listen to this quote. It's by a man, uh, Tim Challies is his name. And he, he talks about our benefits of our union with Christ. He writes this. Anything Christ did as your representative God counted as if you actually did it. God was considering you as belonging to Christ as being one with his son. In God's eyes, what Christ did, you did. When Christ lived a life of perfect love and obedience, God thought of you as living a life of perfect love and obedience. When Christ went to the cross to suffer and die, God counted your sins as belonging to Christ so that he suffered and died for you. In fact, God even counted Christ's death as your death. He counted Christ's burial as your burial. Christ's resurrection as your resurrection, Christ's ascension to the Father's side as your ascension to the Father's side. And because you are united to Christ in all this, all of Christ's blessings are now your blessings, and all of his benefits are now your benefits. The glory of being unified with Christ. We deserve absolutely, absolutely nothing. But through faith, we are unified with Christ, and what Christ receives, we receive. Amen? Righteousness, that's ours, because what Jesus has done and because of our faith with him. God sees you and me, if you're trusting in Christ, as have already lived in a completely obedient, a completely loving life because Christ did in your place. So he looks on us and he declares us righteous. And he justly does this because he sees Christ's righteousness upon us that we have been enveloped in, like that suit that Casey puts on. So this is our union with Jesus, our union with Christ. We're an heir of this promise. Now that brings to the second point. One of the benefits of our union with Jesus is our collective unity in Christ. So each of us who believe are in union with Jesus. And although we are individuals, we are unified with the same person, namely Jesus, and therefore we have unity together in the said person, Jesus. 
Verse 28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. <coughs> we have unity in Jesus. We're all one in Christ. And in this verse, Paul lists three very well-defined social distinctions at that time, in, at his, in the time of his day. Three very well-defined social distinctions that separated people. Ethnicity, social financial class, and gender. And in that separation at that time, it was clear in that society who was the, the who you wanted to be, who was superior, if you will, and that was Jewish free males were the person you wanted to be. And it was said that they were more valuable and that they were better than other people. But Paul here explains that the gospel completely destroys that thinking, completely destroys it. There's no one is better than the other in Christ. And so in the eyes of God, one's ethnicity, one's social financial class, one's gender is not better than the other. He values us all the same and loves us all the same. We're all equal at the cross. We're all saved the same way. We all receive the same spiritual blessings in Christ. We all receive the same Holy Spirit. We all receive spiritual gifts. There's no direction or distinction, I should say, in spiritual blessings because we're all one in Christ. At this time, with these separations in society, what Paul writes here was completely radical. Completely I just think, what a shock to the Jews who thought that it was basically that they were descendants of Abraham, that they were the ones with salvation. And Paul was saying, nope, we're all the same at the foot of the cross. It's, we're all the same and we're all one in Christ. What a shock. And think about what Paul says of woman. One pastor notes the absolute shock this would have been. He writes this, in recognizing Believing woman as the full spiritual equals of believing men, Christianity elevated woman to a status they have never known before in the ancient world. So our culture can accuse the Bible of being sexist all they want, but the truth is God's word has radically elevated woman to equal status with men and is the foundation of the same truth in our culture today, or in our country today, I should say. So in Christ, we are of equal value and worth. There's no distinction between ethnicities, no distinction between social financial classes. There's no distinction between two genders. Now, when I was reading this, or just kind of looking through it, <clears throat> I found it very interesting that these three aspects of society that Paul brings up seem to be the top three reasons for division in our own culture and the three top divisions threaten the church in America today. Ethnicity, social financial class, and gender. Black versus white, native versus white, minority versus white. Um, all we hear is people calling each other racist. And this division over ethnicity is pushing into the church, um, threatening to divide us, where many in the church now say that's wrong to say that we're, we're, we're reconciled through the gospel. The rich versus the poor, the privileged versus the underprivileged. The oppressed poor and the top 10% oppressors. We hear this division everywhere in politics, universities, that those who are more well-off financially oppress the poor by the simple fact that they have more money regardless of whether they earned it. Sexism, feminism, male privilege. We can look anywhere 
in our culture, TV, movies, the news, politics, universities, anywhere. And it's impossible to escape this, this, this obvious division trying to be pushed among the two genders, and especially the pressure on the church trying to cause division over supposed oppression, the false accusation that men are oppressing women by holding to scripture that God has called men to be elders, men to church leadership, men to leadership in the family. So these three, ethnicity, social, financial class, gender, all threaten the church within America today. And please let me quickly show how God actually has a response to this, which threatens our, our, our unity in Christ. And I don't mean to oversimplify the issues. I don't mean to be comprehensive, but I don't want to just leave it as it is. So how has God responded to each of these three accusations and threats to the church? Because here Paul clearly says that there's no distinction. We are, we are all one in Christ. So here we go. Number one, in the early church, there was three very distinct distinctions, or that's two words, distinct ethnic groups that had disdain for each other. More specific, the Jews had disdain for the other two. It was the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Samaritans. We already looked at like the Jews and the Gentiles, how the Jews saw them as barbarians and dogs. We saw in the woman at the well, John chapter 4, that the Jews absolutely hated the Samaritans. They saw them as traitors. But yet, everywhere in the New Testament, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Acts, we see how these three groups had been reconciled in the gospel. And that's very clear in Acts. It's a, one of the most most important themes is the unity of the church, regardless of this difference in ethnicity. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for he, being Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In the gospel, ethnic divisions are reconciled. Number two, um, nowhere in the New Testament are the rich seen as better than the poor? In fact, you could say that the rich have it harder in the New Testament. Um, Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Um, because he loves his riches and has great wealth, we are told that money is a root of all kinds of evil. Numerous times we're commanded to not show favoritism, and specifically based on social financial status. So the rich are commanded to be generous, not to trust in their riches, being rich is not inherently evil or oppressive. One is not better than the other. We're all one in Christ. And the third point that I just want to just in some way show that Christ, God has, has talked about this, has addressed this. The third one is that God's word elevates women to be of equal status with men. But the thing that people get held up on is the different roles, which we see in scripture. Men are to lead sacrificially and serve. Women are to follow and support. In the submissive role, and just that word can grind some of our gears. Is Casey in here? No, she's not. Okay. No, I'm just messing with you. Um, but it, it can seem demeaning. But the f- fact is, if we go back to the creation of this relationship dynamic in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, we see something interesting. And so the word that defines this, this dynamic is ezer, the Hebrew word ezer that God made for man a helper, a woman, fit for him, being the word Ezra. And the thing is that in the rest of the Bible, 
when the word Ezra is used, it almost always refers to God helping people. God, most, like, most of the time, helping the Israelites. And so we see that this, this Ezra, the one helping, refers to the one, someone who is superior, someone capable, someone at the very least equal to the one that they're helping. And so in no way does God present this dynamic of leader in submission at all demeaning. It was very clear at that time that God was the Ezra many times to the Israelites. And so we see this picture that the, the role of, of Ezra is not demeaning whatsoever. And so in, even in the very beginning, it was not demeaning. The, the it was simply a role. And so again, I did not claim that this was going to be comprehensive, but just a, a little insight that God has addressed this and that in the gospel, we're all equal and valuable in Christ. We are all equal spiritually in Christ. So these three areas, they threaten to divide the church, but God unites these three differences in the gospel to express unity. Uh, Thomas Schreiner, uh, a scholar, he writes this. The solution to problems of race and class and gender is found in the gospel. Some might claim that such an assertion is simplistic. But such a response is itself superficial, for it fails to see the profundity in the depth of the gospel. And let me end uh, this point on our unity in Christ from three verses in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to be to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You hear this one, repeated seven times. One. One. So because of our union with Christ, each of us who believe in him has this unity together in Christ. So union with Christ, unity in Christ. Both incredibly significant for our lives, for our church, for our families, uh, for our spiritual lives, for everything. So, Christian, this week you did not obey perfectly. You did not do enough. You were not sinless. You did not love your spouse enough. You did not love your parent enough. You did not share the gospel enough. You just didn't do enough. You didn't do the one another commands enough. But you're in union with Jesus Christ. And therefore God sees you as completely righteous. You're in a position before God as being completely righteous. God sees you as already have lived an obedient, perfectly obedient and perfectly loving life. Completely sinless. You are forgiven. You are free. You have peace with God which cannot change. You have hope. You have assurance. And you have grace upon grace upon grace upon grace available. We can rest in this. We can rest in our union with Christ. And Christian, if you have not yet publicly professed your unity with Jesus, your spiritual baptism, your immersion with Christ, through physical baptism, I actually consider that. Because baptism is important and it is commanded to be baptized. And as a way of reminder, as we saw today, the physical act of being baptized does not do anything to your salvation. It is an outward profession 
and picture of the union with Christ that you have through faith alone. And it also professes our unity as a church, that we have all been spiritually immersed in Christ and we're unified together, our unity together. So if you are a believer and have not yet been baptized, and if you desire to be baptized, please grab one of the elders. We'd love to talk with you. And lastly, uh, a point here. <clears throat> Paul does not command us, or he does not call us to be unified. He says we are already unified in Christ. He just calls us to live that out more, to live that out better, to keep this unity in Christ. And so have you, have I, been eager to maintain this unity? Have you actively worked hard to forgive and be reconciled where needed? Have you rooted out the weeds of bitterness and anger, like the writer in Hebrew says? Have you seen to it that that does not spring up in your relationships? Have you intentionally went out of your way to encourage others, to support others, and to serve others in need? There will be conflict, no question. But how are we handling this conflict? Have you pursued deep, intimate relationships where you care deeply for the other and are invested in each other's lives? Or have you been maintaining a superficial unity? We are close enough to be seen as close, but distant enough to be disconnected and safe. Have you been involved in divisions? Divisions uh, based on ethnicity, social, financial status, gender, like we see here, or other divisions, family, or whatever else you list there. There's no prejudice in the body of Christ, as we see. There's no, um, no identity politics we see here in Christ. There's nothing. We're all one in Christ. And so we're supposed to strive for this unity that we already have, but to live it out. It doesn't just happen. It needs to be intentional. So if you're here today, and if God has been working your life this week, this past month, today, whether it is um, for the first time to turn from your sin and trust in Christ, or as a believer that God is just pressing on some area in your life, and you'd like to talk with someone, pray with someone, please, the elders will be more than happy to talk with you. During the week, if you're like, you know what, this is just really pressing on me, please give one of us a call, a text. We would make a time to make it happen, to talk with you, pray with you, support you, whatever that would look like. And it works out very well that today we're also going to be sharing um, and partake of the Lord's Supper together, which celebrates and reminds us of those two things, our union with Jesus and our unity in Jesus. And so I'll invite the deacons to come forward as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. And as they're coming forward, as a, a reminder, uh, here at Soway Bible Chapel, we, we, we practice open communion, meaning that participation is not just for those who are members of the Soway Bible Chapel, but for all those who are members of Christ's bride, the church, those who have, are trusting in Christ. So, as Jesus, as we think back to the time of the, 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 the Last Supper, as Jesus eating with his disciples, he took the bread, he said that it is his body for which is broken for us and it's through his death through faith we are united with him and because we're in union with him god sees us and I've, i'm repeating this because this is what i have a hard time grasping god sees us positionally 
as already have lived a completely obedient and loving life. We're righteous in Christ. We stand before God righteous. And we live out from that identity. We are clothed with Christ's righteousness. So, Father, what a wonderful truth. And, Lord, as I said there, for me, and I'm assuming for a lot of people here, how difficult it is to grasp this, to believe it. Every morning we wake up when the, when the enemy of our souls is right there, as we read in Ephesians 6 in our Sunday school class, throwing those flaming darts, those doubts, those accusations. He's ready. And, Lord, may we rest in our union with you. May we preach the truth to ourselves that we are completely righteous in you because of our union with Christ. And Lord, as we take this bread, may we be renewed by this truth that you see us as completely perfect in Christ. Amen.